According to a new poll just out a couple of days ago, Canadians are being less careful about physical distancing, perhaps due to fatigue and anxiety. Despite the continuing COVID-19 pandemic and the advice of health officials of the least likely to be following those health officials' orders and advice are those in the 18 to 34-year-old range. Uh, This is a particular finding of this new Angus Reid poll. 36% of respondents saying they're staying away from public spaces as much as they were during the early days. 56% still physically distancing. Either way, it appears to be we are basically relaxing despite advice to the contrary here to talk about fatigue and anxiety is kimberly cross kimberly is a registered psychotherapist who specializes in anxiety depression mindfulness she joins us from aurora ontario kim good morning welcome to the program Hi, Sterling. How are you this morning? I am well, thank you. Uh, we, uh, I would imagine Ontario statistics are very comparable to British Columbia in terms of uh, attitudes, particularly young people, 18 to 34-year-olds, uh, being the least likely to want to continue observing these uh, very logical, but nonetheless restrictive guidelines. So you'd like a little comment on that? I would. As a matter of fact, it would it would uh, kind of brighten my day if you had something. Because you know, uh, if mm-hmm. you look at the stats, just uh, very quickly, anecdotally, Kim, south of the border, because of all of the uh, protests and demonstrations and all the rest of it, there's been quite an uptick in COVID nineteen cases, and regrettably, mm-hmm. a large percentage of the new numbers are from the eighteen to thirty four year old age group. That was the least affected population group up until now? Uh, So the first thing I would say is that we have to look at polls very carefully. And in this poll in particular, we're not in the early part of lockdown. Mm -hmm. We're in the opening up phase, which is phase two, depending on where we are in the country. Sure. And we can't um, really assess behavior based on new conditions. We're comparing apples to oranges. So... uh, People's behavior is changing and our society is opening up and people are getting haircuts and going to the dentist. So, of course, their behavior is changing with uh, a lot of cautions and protocols in place. Mm hmm. So I got a haircut yesterday, by the way. You'll be thrilled to know. You? Yeah, yes, yeah. I'm sure you enjoyed that. I hadn't had one since March, and I definitely looked the part, Kim. So I, I finally got downtown. Uh, two things, actually, out of that. I was on yes. the I was on the public transit system for the first mm-hmm. time in three months. I'm a regular user, but again, uh, a little a little standoffish because of all of this. And the recommendation mm-hmm. from our transit system, the Vancouver equivalent of the TTC, is we highly recommend passengers use masks so i figure and i've been listening to the messaging for three months i just haven't been on the system so i get on the on the system i'm wearing my mask comfortably and i look around and maybe maybe 20 percent of the passengers are wearing masks and none of the younger passengers are period so again this is a demographic thing that i noticed just casually sitting on a subway car a sky train car in our case heading downtown for a haircut uh some of the patios in the area that i went to called yale town were open mm-hmm. and uh, you know with, mm-hmm. with distancing between the tables again almost all the clientele 18 to 34 year olds interesting stuff 
Well, I'd be happy to talk about 18 to 34-year-olds, but maybe we should start the discussion by saying that people have made huge adaptations to current conditions and have done remarkably well. You bet. In a, in a prolonged crisis around safety and health for ourselves, our loved ones, and everyone we meet is someone's loved one. Mm-hmm. So people have done well. Uh, and we, I think, need some really clear messaging from our public health authorities about how to operationalize this moving back into society. And 18 to 34-year-olds um, are making some decisions because they're in low-risk categories. Right. And each person is responsible for their behavior and the risks they take and the risks that they, um, you know, the you know, how their behavior might influence someone else. And, of course, it's, it's, the, yeah. fati- it's the fatigue factor, too. It's a combination. It's kind of a, a, a potent combination, really, isn't it? Because, we, as you say, we've done a remarkable job uh, as a country. Incredible. Uh, for 90-plus for, for days, 100 days now, Kim. We've mm-hmm. been observing social distancing. We've been behaving very, very well. But, you know, there's also it's also summertime, first day of summer yesterday afternoon. Mm-hmm. I mean, Beautiful. here we are. And all of a sudden, there is, there's just that pent-up cabin fever urge to get out and mix it up with other people. Well, I think we should talk about that in terms of the stress that people are under Mm -hmm. and the challenge with mental health that uh, people have um, been very stressed and that means their brains and bodies, their mind body has been flooded with stress hormones. And one of the best ways to cope with stress is to be social, to be with others, to connect, to talk about fun things, but also the difficulties that we're having to share experience. And the pressure to be social at this point in time is completely understandable. Oh, sure. Yeah. So because we've been, uh, uh, we've deprived ourselves of it, and in many cases, we've been forced to be deprived of it because there have been no no venues to go socialize in, no bars or restaurants or clubs or any of that kind of thing. Now, here in B.C., we're just a little ahead of Ontario. In fact, we're anticipating phase three, Kim, within the next mm-hmm. couple of weeks, which would allow for mm-hmm. hotels and, and uh, resorts and those sorts of things. So we are a little ahead of Ontario in that regard, but still, uh, the the basic guidelines are are exactly the same. So the stress um, levels would still be the same, even though, you know, we're a week or two off kilter in terms of, of matching exactly. I don't think the stress levels are terribly different. Well, I think, I think they're high yeah. across all ages. Everyone has had a unique experience. And for some who have underlying medical uh, med- medical issues or mental health issues or for those who, you know, that COVID is an extra layer of stress. Many people went into this period at high levels of stress due to an ill family member or um, due to work issues, financial problems. So stress is very high. Mm -hmm. And I think people are naturally gathering. Um, And, you know, I've actually been very impressed um, with, the messaging, I think we could do better for uh, the 25 to 34-year-olds 30 old, because I think it's important for young people to understand that we need to get the economy moving 
And that caution at this time is very important, that people should be staying within their bubble and being cautious. And, um, and that, um, you know, it's in the best interests of our young people that the economy stabilize so that they can find the work and get the opportunities that they are looking for to mm-hmm. move their own lives forward. Kimberly Cross is a registered psychotherapist joining us from Ontario this morning. Kim, when we were uh, corresponding before uh, this uh, mm-hmm. e- event, our, our conversation today, you uh, indicated that you wanted, to, you were quite willing to talk about uh, stress and burnout and coping, mm-hmm. and you also added and the growth that comes from facing challenges. So let's go back mm-hmm. to the stress and coping part and end up on the growth that comes from dealing with all of this because we're getting pretty good at dealing. It's been a hundred days for crying out loud, Kim. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. at the resistant level, as we've uh, agreed, is lowering uh, as, as you know, summer and, and our, our urge to socialize is becoming rather dominant. Still, uh, we're, we're being quite restrained. restrained. We had a, one of the executives from Deloitte on last weekend, Kim, and they had yes. just they had just done their state of the consumer survey for this summer, mm-hmm. and the anxiety factor is still way up there. Yes, stores are open, yes, restaurants are open, but the number of people even willing to go out and patronize is still disturbingly low. As we watch something mm-hmm. like the restaurant business literally die before our eyes, that's hard to mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about stress and and lowering the anxiety factor where we can begin to participate in that economy that you you talked about just before the break. You were saying, you know, there is an urgent need to get this economy back on the rails here. And yet there are guidelines that we have to work around. Um, Yes. So I would say that, you know, being really stressed at this point in time makes sense. And there are ways to get help. There are ways to look after ourselves. And there are ways to use our social connections to calm down in a way that makes sense in this environment. Mm -hmm. So we are being encouraged to move out, and we can do that. And uh, I think at this point in time, we're going to be doing some, um, maybe moving into more matured ways of caring for ourselves and caring for others and learning more about the impacts of anxiety and stress on our bodies. Mm Mm-hmm. It's this time is asking for more. We're capable of adapting and we can all learn together about how to do that. And so the the interaction, the social interaction that comes with just sharing the frustrations of lockup mm-hmm. and all the rest. Of, in fact, mm-hmm. that process of venting and sharing is indeed quite the stress relieving uh, mechanism, isn't it? It's it's really important to building the happy hormones in our bodies that allow us to calm down and come back to more of a steady state or or um, a more normal balance, which we call resilience. Mm-hmm. So we need a balance of stress hormones help us pay attention to threat, and happy hormones help us calm down and um, get grounded and make good decisions. And the balance, of course, is the, the, the success story is finding the appropriate balance. Uh, and uh, so what are the what are the factors that will will, will drag people away from from because uh, we all want some kind of nice balance in our lives. And many of us are actually working hard to find it. And yet there are these factors that keep pulling us away or distracting us from our journey. Well, absolutely. And I think, you know, what you did, Sterling, with wearing your mask on 
the TTC, that's an excellent model for others. One of the ways that we can help at this time is to make a positive contribution. So just in doing that alone, you're modeling for others that the guidelines are still in place Mm -hmm. and you're following those. We can do that for each other. I suppose um, I suppose I just uh, back to the uh, the younger demographic for a second. Uh, mm-hmm. And and there's again, south of the line, uh, the president refuses to wear a mask. His most ardent supporters also refuse to wear a mask. It's the sign of a tough guy or whatever that's about. Uh, younger people still typically less inclined to observe guidelines. Uh, and even though, you know, we do our best, as you say, I wore a mask because I was on public transit mm-hmm. and that's what they want. No biggie. Uh, but at, at the same time, you know, there's this sort of youthful uh, expression of rebellion. Oh, I'm not wearing a mask. I'm young and tough. Uh, and there's that as well. So I, I think we need some more help from our public health people about how to operationalize summer for each for each category of risk for young people and older people. And I think we need some really clear messages from Bonnie Henry Mm -hmm. and Teresa Tam about how to do our summer in a way that's responsible. Um, Young people are just trying to build some happy hormones. And I think if we are in a risk category, we need to be more cautious. And we would certainly ask young people not to approach, not to be with their grandparents or anybody with an underlying health condition, and that there may be ways to enjoy summer that would also allow some connection as well as the caution that we're um, all being asked to exercise while we open up. And thank you to British Columbia because you'll be demonstrating for other parts of the country um, what works and what doesn't. And we have to keep focusing on what's really working. A lot is. Tremendous effort is going into making this work for all of us and we'll be more prepared for any other wave or any other pandemic that might come our way. We are so lucky in British Columbia. You mentioned Dr. Bonnie Henry and she's just been absolutely marvelous. She's so steady and she's just so even keel and, uh, and, and just, it's just been a wonderful sort of beacon through all of this. Uh, And uh, I think that it's that consistency of messaging, uh, same energy, every opinion, appearance uh, and with just a little bit of that looking for the growth thing that you do yes, in, in your work too. She, she's sort of, without saying anything, encouraging us to find a way to grow out of all of this. So with that in mind, where do you look and how do you grow? Well, I think we've grown already individually and as part of a community and in our countries and We have to keep looking for those good models of behavior and demonstrating them ourselves. Um, We have risen to the challenge for the most part, and and there's some areas that we can improve on. That's what the growth comes from. We've been able to just kind of live our strength and live with a sense of purpose about taking care of ourselves and helping each other. And... In that way, we make a contribution to our society by making a difference. Mm -hmm. Every individual's action has impact um, on the wider community. And I think this is a time where we're more globally conscious and aware that every individual affects the larger community and can be in enormously positive ways.
All right, Kim, uh, thank you for this very much. Uh, and I will continue to wear my mask on SkyTrain and hope that more other people do. A pleasure to have you on the model. program. Indeed. Lovely to speak to you. Thanks so much, Sterling. Uh, indeed. Kimberly Cross joining us from Aurora, Ontario. The Mounties have been in the news lately a lot and for a lot of the wrong reasons. A former British Columbia MP who's been pushing for accountability in the RCMP for years says there have only been incremental changes since he started. The time has come for that to change. We're uh, delighted to welcome Nathan Cullen to the program. Mr. Cullen, of course, longtime member of parliament <laughs> for Skeena, Bulkley Valley, and uh, 15 years in the job representing that area of northern British Columbia. Nathan, good morning. Welcome to the program. And good morning to you. And it's, uh, I'm sure your listeners want to know, it is a beautiful day in northwestern BC. Uh, the sun is out, but my children are not up, so... You know, Father's Day is going to look a little slower. How old are the twin boys, Nathan? How old are your sons? My guys will be 10 years old in about a month's time. So my my expectations were not that they were going to be up before me uh, doing anything like breakfast in bed. But it's... it's, uh, it's amazing to be back home and not doing that commute back to Ottawa back and forth every week. Oh, I'll just bet. You know, that's the one thing that uh, people in other parts of the country fail to appreciate when you become a <laughs> member of parliament from a remote location like Old Terrace, B.C. You're on the that's road right. more than you're doing anything else, right? Oh, yeah. My uh, my first few years, I think my staff told me we averaged 320 days a year on the road. And I thought, OK, that might not be great for my relationship <laughs> with my wife or my family. So we had to pull it back a bit, but it's amazing. It's what, a, what an honor all those years were. And yeah, glad to, someone else is doing it too, so they can do it better than I did. <laughs> That's right. And you got a new job too. We'll talk about LNG in a few minutes, but Nathan, I wanted to talk to you about the Mounties because uh, mm-hmm. my gosh, they've been in the, in the news a lot and for a lot of the wrong reasons. Uh, and you, and this goes back to, you had a private member's bill over 10 years ago, uh, again, okay. pushing for more accountability. Uh, and, and of course, the big issue that has come up uh, it, it most recently is the notion, certainly not an alien notion to a person representing con- a constituency like yours, sir, but the notion of systemic racism existing in the RCMP, a notion the commissioner herself had enormous difficulty reconciling until I, re- I suspect she received a phone call that uh, assisted in that process a great deal. Anyway, uh, we, we've, we've had, they've had a rough week. Well, I mean, yes, perhaps, I suppose, um, now that it's acknowledged, we can say people that were um, getting the results of that systemic racism have had a rough number of decades. Oh, no question. No question. Yeah, and and I know the commissioner uh, well enough, and I think she's a very, very thoughtful person. Uh, I think she does believe in reform and is also trying to reform, you know, something the size of a battleship. Like, it doesn't turn easy. It's got a lot of history. It's got a lot of its own culture, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, which is what you want. You want institutions that are strong, that are reliable. Um, but change is also something that you want. And this was, yeah, I, I, it was remarkable to me because when I first started talking about police accountability more than a decade ago, I just get yelled at a lot, you know. And for me, it was strange because. To my mind, uh, you can have respect for what we ask the men and women of the RCMP to do, which is a very dangerous, difficult job. Sure. Have have respect for that, and you can ask for accountability. I don't, people seem to want to separate those things, and I've never understood that. And to my mind, I grew up in the city, 
I watched neighborhoods that lost confidence in the police to be fair and objective. And without that trust, without the community's trust, it is, I think it's just impossible to do policing. Like, I, you know, something happens, you go around looking for witnesses and nobody's seen anything. And to my mind, and that's, that, that is a neighborhood level, but it can also be community in the sense of Indigenous people, right, or Black Canadians who say, my experience with the police or my family's experience has been bad. Mm-hmm. I can't trust it. And therefore, I don't trust the force. And, you know, and so that's just an ingredient to me that seems so critical to policing. Nathan, <laughs> one of the things... got to know that you're good. Yeah, one, uh, and one of the things that's coming up, we're watching all the protests going on, of course, south of the mm-hmm. line in the aftermath of those terrible police incidents, notice, uh, notably in uh, Minneapolis. But uh, one of the things that we're seeing, of course, along with this defund the police uh, rhetoric, uh, is that, and it's come up a few times, and I'm asking this question specifically this morning because of your inside knowledge of the RCMP. One concept that keeps coming up is not defund the police as much as demilitarize the police mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and and I, I i put that to you this morning because as you t- you've already mentioned uh, we are uh, our our rcmp is a proud traditional uh, organization but very paramilitary in nature could that be an impediment in terms of reform let me say two quick things. One on the, I, I've never really loved the term defund the police. Right. To, to a lot of people, that means. Take them of, away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it, the idea that you're not going to need policing in our communities is insane, mm-hmm. to my mind. I think what people are trying to point out, maybe inaccurately or in, mm, ineloquently, is that a lot of the calls have got nothing to do with crime and could be handled by a social worker sure. or a health care worker. Someone's got mental health issues and they're wandering the streets of Vancouver. Do you need a guy with a gun handling them? Probably not. Mm-hmm. You need somebody who's trained that way. Okay, so let's let's put that over there. Maybe some people, I think some fringe, do want no police, but I think that doesn't represent the broader view. I agree. On the mili- militarization thing, our experiences in the Canada and the U.S. have been quite different. The U.S. military it is a way through their tax code, actually, able to just pass down used military equipment and have been doing it for 25 years. Yep. What, what do you do if someone gives you a hammer, right? You start looking for nails. And I think when you give local police forces really intense military equipment, they're not just going to leave it in the shed, right? They're going to take it out when there's a small protest. And now you've got a big military-looking kind of tank coming down the street. That's not going to help if, if your goal is de-escalation. And they're not being trained in it properly. In Canada, we've had a little bit of that with the RCMP. But not anywhere to the degree. They, they are not being de- getting decommissioned military equipment right. that I'm aware of on a mass scale. Have they militarized more? Um, that's hard for me to say. I wouldn't have said that's the main problem. I'd say that's an element, but I wouldn't have associated that to the main issues that are going on with some communities in Canada. I suppose it's the culture, the military culture, more than the sure. uh, than the armaments sure. that we're talking well, about. Because you're quite right, it's very different in right. the states because they're demonstrably more militarized. You can look at the gear they've got. It's not the case in, in Canada, but our 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 Mounties, of course, are yeah. a paramilitary operation. That's and and I was wondering whether the that culture. Sure. Nathan was influential yeah. in terms of dealing with their problems. Well, let's uh, let's be clear that that you know, you, at one hand, you could say it's good that the police are connected one to the other and they feel a certain camaraderie or sisterhood, brotherhood, whatnot. Mm-hmm. Where it becomes a problem is on accountability, 
to say that there are tens of thousands of RCMP across the country and every one of them every day acts ethically and accountably is crazy. You can't get 30,000 of anybody together where there's not going to be somebody doing something wrong. Yep. Okay, so let's accept that. The problem becomes if they're not accountable to each other and if there is not a culture in which when somebody should not be a cop, right, or should not be carrying a gun and we don't point it out as a culture, that becomes the problem. That's the blue line that you've run into as media. I ran into as politician, as a politician, where you'd say, look at this incident is crazy. This guy has had 15 violent incidents in three years, all with Indigenous people. Do we think there's a problem? And what we do, the RCMP would do, is write a report and then transfer the person. Right. And it's like, okay, that, <laughs> that's a bad cultural aspect of being united. You want to be, you want to be together. But you also want to be have a you know the police unions have been a real problem. The RCMP have a different version of that, where you're not protecting people who should not be protected. They should be held accountable, not be shuffled, because to create a problem in some other town, and run the whole thing again. And who gets the worst of it is the people who are targeted by these folks. Right, and and the culture also contributes to that whole sort of the, there's no such thing as a bad cop mentality. And when there is an incident where there there clearly is wrong malfeasance of some kind, uh, the tendency is to defend to sort of protect sure. to form a protective circle rather than uh, and and so that gets in the way of yeah. uh, of addressing the problem because well you know uh, you know we went to school with this guy we were at the depot together and on yeah, and yeah. on it goes right. Well, and here's a, just a system challenge is that you had someone like me uh, representing the, the lowest regarded uh, occupation in Canada, a politician criticizing the police who are amongst the highest regarded. Uh, understandably, I get why people don't think politicians are any good. And I get why people want to trust the police. I get all that. But the accountability, the people who are helping write the laws that do guide the police in the way that they conduct themselves on things like we're, we're talking about are people that the public don't trust. And that's what I ran into just at a, at a personal level where I'd say, hey, here's a conversation we need to have. And I'd get yelled at from other politicians who knew that wrapping their arms around the police was a political no-brainer, right? right? That just makes you popular sure. with your voters, saying, I love the police, I go in their parades, they're great guys, there's not a bad one in the lot. And someone like me would say, hey, I think it's a bit more nuanced than that, and they'd say, cop hater. Yeah. You don't like the cops. And I'd like, can we have a grown-up conversation about this? We give them huge responsibility and powers. We should expect that power to be handled maturely and responsibly. And if it isn't, what are we going to do about it? And people would then yell cop hater and then the conversation would die. And, and I, I'm, I am appreciative, actually, that the conversation seems to have gotten a little more mature. Unfortunately, it's only in crisis and horrible situations like we're watching in the States. But that's how change happens sometimes, unfortunately. People need to be kind of shocked in it to say, okay, now tell me there's no bad cops or that we don't need reform of what happens when a police officer, say, kills somebody in cold blood on a on a you know a recording that we all get to watch and wonder what the heck is going on yeah. and what are we going to do about it yeah nathan cullen is our guest mr cullen a former mp for skeena bulkley valley for 15 years nathan uh you you talked uh, in the course of your political career to 
hundreds, if not thousands of cops and a lot of one-on-one conversations during which some members asked you or told you point blank, listen, we, we do need to make some changes in this culture and we need some help. What kind of help do they suggest they need versus the kind of help politicians think they need? It's a really good question. It, most of the interactions between police and politicians at the what I'd call the political level, right, where you have, you know, the head of the police department or head of the RCMP, it's around funding. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it would be around, um, well, they're not supposed to really talk about legislation. One thing that came out of it for me is I started a, uh, essentially a conference call with all the detachment commanders, because we have a lot of towns in the riding I represented. And once every month, every two months, we'd get on the horn and I would just tell them, all the legislation that's being passed through Parliament, that's, that's going to affect their lives. And they would tell me what's going on in the street. They'd tell me, these are the drugs that are moving through right now, right. these are the crime. And that dialogue really doesn't happen between politicians and police from at the federal level. I can't speak to city or provincial that often. And it was an interesting and tricky conversation to have because there should be separations, right? You don't want politicians, you know, vetting bills with police or, you know, They've got their role. We write the laws, they enforce the laws, sure, yeah. and that's good. But the gap between what I would hear from people who said they backed the police, they'd get up in Parliament or on the news and say, often from the more conservative branch of things, would say, I'm, I'm a fighter for the police, and I know what they want, and this is what they want. That gap between what they were saying and what I would hear from the 15 detachment commanders I would have on the horn every month was amazing to me sometimes. So I think we've got to find a way that the, the, the average politician in Canada and the average police officer in Canada can have some dialogue about things like even things like racial profiling. Right. Because we don't we don't talk about it and it happens. We all kind of know what's happening, but we just we have this very official engagement that doesn't really get to the heart of it. So some of the things that I learned about were things like if we have a, a police officer who's behaving badly um, a senior officer who's their commander has very few, all the way up to the commissioner of the RCMP at the time, had very few ways to discipline them or fire them. And they and they publicly, as of about four or five years ago, started asking for that power. Can we have the power to fire police officers who shouldn't be police officers? Right. And you think, how basic is that? And it was something that they would then plead with politicians in Ottawa to say, can you change the RCMP Act to allow us to do this? And you'd think, wow, this is, isn't this weird? Isn't this a strange moment where the politicians are now standing in the way of what the police are asking for, which is we need to keep spirit high. We need to keep accountability high or get some. Can you help us do it? And it, Ottawa just turned itself into knots trying to change the police act to figure out how to allow this to happen. Did it's they? Just, it's, uh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> not, not fully and not effectively and this might circle back to that comment i was making about the police organizations itself which are there to protect i get it to protect their officers from any kind of abuse or misunderstandings of power sure but it's too too far i would argue too far and a lot of police officers beat cops up here would say to me the same thing look i'm working with a guy he's got anger problems he's got ptsd maybe like he's not getting treatment or I'm working with somebody who really, really doesn't like Native people, and we're working in a place that's a third First Nation. Mm-hmm. So what's going on? This is not good for me, and it's not good for the community. What do we do about this? And, and, and they're coming to a federal MP to try to fix something, and that's not appropriate. It's got to be done through their own systems and accountability 
And that's what we tried to change. We wanted public oversight. We wanted the police, the senior police to be able to, you know, properly, you know, if necessary, fire somebody who shouldn't be a cop. Because the idea that every single person that comes out of that police academy is going to make a great cop, that's just nuts. Like, yeah. that isn't true in any line of work, right? Media, pol- politics, business. Absolutely. So, that's Nathan, really. if, if the public doesn't trust politicians enough mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. appropriate overseers of our police forces, who does the public trust enough to be appointed by politicians in their place to keep an eye on things and to keep things on the straight and narrow? Well, we... we Certainly judges, right? We place judges in that role sometimes if there's misconduct of a, a, a serious enough nature that charges are brought. True, yeah. Problem, problem with that is, I'm suspecting you know, is the relationship between the Crown prosecutors and the police sometimes is very close. They don't love to bring charges against police because right. they often need to rely on police in order to bring charges in other cases. you got a bad relationship with the police. It's hard to be a Crown, crown prosecutor. I would say uh, public oversight bodies, right, where we say here are five, seven individuals of high standing in our community. They know they're going to understand the police act. They're going to understand the rules and they're going to be the ones when something bad happens. I'm not saying these are perfect, but I think this is one remedy. And we've created them in Canada, Mm -hmm. BC, at least. We need one for the RCMP, a proper one that says this is where the public has oversight of the police. In incidents where there's a serious harm or death in police custody, like we had in Ian Bush in Houston back in 2005, right. that it will not be the police investigating themselves to determine if there's any guilt. It will be an independent public oversight group and not made up of actively serving officers, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. There's, they've been created. It was one of our great initiatives that got done. They're not perfect. They need some work. But I think that is something the public can trust because this is the public's representation. It's not somebody who has to get elected next year who's trying to look over the police shoulder to make sure that everything's being done properly and not racially based, not violently uh, harming people when there's no need, uh, excessive use of force, those kinds of things. Indeed. Uh, Nathan, I have literally one minute left, and I'm going to change gears on you, uh, because a lot of people, you're doing some liaison work for the governor of British Columbia on this LNG pipeline project in your turf there. Uh, Bottom line, I suppose, for a lot of curious Vancouverites is, are we going to get an LNG pipeline or not? I don't know. <laughs> I wish I could tell you what the work I'm doing is around a, a rights and title uh, a negotiation with the Wet'suwet'en and Canada and BC, which which is not it's connected but not connected to the pipeline that you're talking about. Right. Um, the pipeline company did announce that they are begun operations again two weeks ago after their COVID shutdown. Um, knock on wood, things are fairly peaceful right now. There aren't uh, any clashes or protests that we know of. Um, but I would not say that it is settled. I think that there's still questions that remain, but the companies lay in pipe and negotiations on the rights and title side are uh, progressing with Canada, BC and the Wet'suwet'en. So that's positive. All right. We'll keep our fingers crossed for that part of it all. Great to have you on the program. You and I haven't had a conversation on the radio for probably five years, and it's great to have you back on the program. We'll talk again, Nathan. I appreciate your time this morning, and happy Father's Day to you. Today is National Indigenous Peoples Day, and it's a pleasure to welcome Leslie Varley to the program. Leslie is the executive director of the BC Association of Aboriginal Friendship Centers. Leslie, good morning. Welcome to the show. 
Hi, good morning, Sterling. Thank you. It's great to have you with us, Leslie. Tell us about the Aboriginal Friendship Centres, of which there are 25 in British Columbia. Uh, how, I know that this movement has been around since the 50s. What's going on these days? Yeah, you know a lot more than others, that's for sure. Uh, we have 25 centres, you're right, around the province that have been some open since the 50s and 60s. Um, uh, they provide, they're all autonomous individual nonprofit societies and they are all uh, uh, members of the association of the BC Friendship Centres. We have about 1,200 employees province-wide and every centre provides services that are uh, described as relevant and in need in their own community. So that could be from housing to childcare to parenting programs to legal advocacy, education supports. Um, social services, uh, all kinds of stuff, and uh, plus community support programs for elders and for youth and teens. How many of those uh, friendship centers would there be in the heavily populated Metro Vancouver area, Leslie? Oh, there's just one, Vancouver uh, Society, uh, and it's been probably, I think it's been around the longest. I think it's been around uh, since 19, mm, the late 1960s. Okay. yeah. And is it as popular now as it uh, was when it first started up? I think so. I mean, the draw there is that they have a gymnasium that, and uh, a uh, beautiful meeting room, the Simon Baker room, which uh, uh, a lot of people use. Oh, sorry, you said Metro Vancouver. So there is one in Surrey as well. Okay. And, uh, you know, the Surrey, po- the indigenous population in Surrey is about the same as it is in Vancouver um, but Surrey only has about four Indigenous service agencies overall, whereas Vancouver has about 30. So the Surrey Friendship Centre has really been growing by leaps and bounds. Um, it's called Fraser Region Aboriginal Friendship Centre, so it, it serves the Fraser, the whole Fraser Valley area as okay. well. What, uh, what are, are there specific programs that we're all going through this pandemic together, like it or not? And I'm curious as to what uh, adjustments or uh, uh, adaptations have undertaken at the friendship centers around British Columbia. Have there been specific programs designed to assist during COVID-19? Uh, yes, for sure. We've had to adjust um, existing programs, so changing the service delivery models. So those centres that have uh, daycares with, say, ambulance workers or nurses in it have had to stay open during during COVID. Um, and those providing family services and supports have had to go to either Zoom or now, say, for example, they're meeting outside in parks and stuff just to make sure that they're keeping the social distancing. Sure. Um, and um, in the um, during COVID, what we recognized with a lot of 85% of Indigenous people in BC live off-reserve. So it's the highest number of off-reserve people in Canada. 85%? Of all Indigenous people, yes. Métis, Inuit, and First Nations people live off-reserve. Interesting. The so, national average is much lower than that, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. Okay. Uh, so um, what we noticed during COVID was uh, our ask for service was doubled and tripled in many centers. Um, so we were dealing with elders. Normally we try to, you know, work with and support our elders, but they were in isolation uh, and they were having a difficult time getting their meds and getting any groceries. Sure. And maybe not the strength to stand in the line for two hours to try to go to the grocery store and finding that the shelves are bare. 
So um, many of our centers, most of our centers started developing <clears throat> foods or meal programs or gift box or food boxes programs to distribute to to those members who are either shut-ins or elders and not able to get out and uh, provide services. Um, there were some, um, you know, increased numbers of people going into crisis due to isolation. So some of the centers developed those kinds of services as well mm-hmm. for elders or for, for youth. I think the biggest issue was... Um, the uh, lack of access to uh, the the food insecurity around the Friendship Center, around the the clientele. We just had so many people calling us and asking us for help and support. And some of them who are living off reserve, with 85%, many, many people are living off reserve. And some of those are certainly attached to a local First Nation or a BC First Nation, but many of them are from other provinces and weren't getting any support from their nations. so, and then the First Nations were limited even here in BC, even how much they could support their off reserve. Some supported their off reserve, and some sent their off reserve population to our friendship centers. So, really, I think the biggest impact was food insecurity. A lot of our people are living in poverty or below the poverty line, and um, and then just you know a lack of cars and lack of access to to actually even go and get in line to get the food, and then. You know, when they get there, they, you know, remember how it was. There were no, very little food on their shelves for the first, um, you know, three or four weeks of right. COVID. So uh, has the, uh, have the centers been able to remain open to one degree or another? Because, of course, a lot of public facilities and public agencies that help uh, members of the public have been forced to close completely because of the pandemic. Have you been able to at least maintain a staff presence in each of those centers to a, a limited degree? Well, most of the centers had to figure out how they were going to maintain a staff, and they had to just quickly pivot and adjust to services. So while every center um, probably was, not every center, but some centers were actually physically closed, Mm -hmm. they would have a list of staff to call or, you know, uh, to contact for help on the doors. So like other businesses or organizations, we had to close, but we made sure that the, you know, the, um, the, the public had access to our, to our staff, you know, through calling us. We were having lots of Zoom or Facebook calls, sure. that kind of thing, yeah. And we moved some of those groups to, um, to, you know, to Zoom groups. So we were having, a, you know, one center was doing an elders bingo over Zoom and, um, we have a staff person at our office, at head office, that was making uh, calls to the elders constantly just to check up on them and mm-hmm. see how they were doing, that kind of thing. So people were adjusting and pivoting as best they could without any, you know, this is all new to every one of, of us. Course. So we all had to figure it out individually. And we got, you know, we got weekly calls from the provincial health officer who was keeping us uh, advised and updated on COVID to make sure that we were safe. So that was actually wonderful. And we had um, biweekly calls with all the executive directors around the province, and we started sharing our, you know, our, our new policies and how we're doing new business. So there's a lot of 
collaboration and cooperation between and among centers. We were really trying to pitch in together to help ourselves get through COVID. Sure. I wanted to ask you about the fact that, as you say, 85% of British Columbia Indigenous people live off reserves. And there's a tremendous amount of concern on those reserves that should COVID ever arrive, it would be an absolute disaster. I suspect you hear that a lot at the Friendship Centers from people anxious not to go anywhere near the reserves during this time? Well, for sure. I mean, it is there is that potential. And I actually live at Musqueam First Nation, where they have um, put up blockades to stop the public. Now, Musqueam is on the side of the city of Vancouver. Sure, it's yeah. right along the Fraser River. Um, and uh, they were stopping the public from coming in here, trying to protect their own people. There is one street that is shared where, you know, there is some resident population like myself. I'm Niska, not Musqueam, who 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 also live here. Um, and so we were given resident, uh, you know, stickers for our cars mm-hmm. and so on. And they were just, you know, being very friendly, but very firm that they didn't want any of the public coming down here to Musqueam, not coming here to walk the dog, not going to the golf center, et cetera, not going down to the river to protect themselves. And that's a fair, that's a fair request. Many of our First Nations uh, communities are outside of, you know, well outside of towns and cities. And so if we're bringing COVID into our community and we don't have any of the equipment or supports and our and the local hospitals are probably pretty small yeah. and very poorly supplied, of course. And then our population as well. You know, when when we're talking about um, illness, our population has a higher rate of chronic disease, you know, diabetes, heart disease, those kinds of things. And so we are probably susceptible, um, more susceptible to COVID. And we wouldn't. And then also, you know, another factor is that um, you don't want to overcrowding invite, and reserves. You don't forever. want to invite disaster either. I get you there. And and I, I appreciate your time this morning, Leslie. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, uh, enjoy National Indigenous Peoples Day, as I suspect you will. And do keep up the excellent work at your BC Aboriginal Friendship Centers, all 25 of them. <laughs> Thanks very much, Sterling. Thank you. Leslie Varley. Our next guest uh, wrote a column in the Vancouver province three weeks ago on the first day of Tourism Week in British Columbia. The, the, the piece was entitled, Is There Hope for the Tourism Economy This Summer or the Remainder of 2020? Not sure what the answer is. That's why he's with us this morning. Walt Judas is the executive, the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association, the author of this column a few weeks ago. Uh, Walt, good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sterling. Good morning. Nice to be here. Good to have you with us, Walt. So the question three weeks ago was, is there hope? And in the column, you also said the answer is yes, but only with more government investment and help. Now, that was three weeks ago. Between that time and now, has anyone stepped up with more government investment and help? Or are you still in the same pickle you were three weeks ago? Well, fortunately, Sterling, there is ongoing government support and help. Most recently, the province uh, offered hospitality, restaurants, pubs, uh, and the like, an opportunity to access wholesale pricing, which has not happened in a long, long time. So, in fact, if ever it's happened. 
And to that end, that will help the hospitality sector most definitely. Good point. uh, Generate some much-needed profits. So it's things like that on an incremental basis that, that are happening. As you know, the federal government has been very, very active introducing numerous programs that the province also advocates for, whether it's wage subsidies, rent relief, etc. And the province is trying to fill the gaps and augmenting where they can. But having said that, uh, there are still things that tourism and hospitality need, including a working capital grant. Many companies have no cash flow. Mm -hmm. In fact, what they had three months ago has been depleted to try to pay a lot of the fixed cost expenses they have on a regular basis, whether it's rent or utilities, etc. To be fair, the province has provided some relief in, in the form of tax breaks and, and a reduction in property taxes by way of example, sure. some utility bill deferments, things of that nature. But many businesses still need cash to, to sustain them through the COVID period to the point where they can begin operations again generate some revenue, open their doors, have some customers, and so on. So we're still not quite there yet and looking for some kind of a package at some point. I'll bet. Now, a big part of that package would, of course, be phase three, wouldn't it, Walt? The, the, uh, and, and we're told that we're within uh, two or three weeks at the outside, maybe even as early as next week, uh, Some uh, Premier Horgan was saying a couple of days ago, could happen as early as next week. Nonetheless, when phase three does roll through, that allows hotels and resorts and the like to reopen, many of which are are still on hold. Is that not the case? And is that just in Vancouver or is that province-wide? Well, province-wide, but hotels were never officially closed because they were declared an essential service. But many were forced to close because of the travel restrictions. They simply had no customers. Right, right. And so therefore shut their doors. Many, of course, stayed open to house people who required self-quarantine, Some had workers that were working in uh, uh, mining camps or in other uh, natural resource sectors, but by and large, the majority of them closed. We're starting to see some of those openings again, Mm -hmm. but uh, the BC Hotel Association does regular surveys, and they show that um, over the months of July and August, hoteliers expect maybe 30% occupancy. That's not enough. To pay the bills, to be sure. So uh, there, there are good, good signs on the horizon. Phase three, everybody is highly anticipating that some of the travel restrictions will be lifted. There are bookings in July and August. Some resorts are completely sold out. Yep. You know, a couple of weeks ago when the province opened uh, its camping reservation system, 42,000 reservations were made. So we know that people will be traveling as a part of phase three, but it likely won't be enough to 
sustain the industry over the long term. I think a lot of people are under the impression, you're quite right, by the way, to, to point out that hotels officially were never closed, but they many of them did because there was no no guests. But I guess, so uh, we, a lot of us assume that the government closed them down, which in fact did not happen. However, because so many of us assume the hotels were closed, uh, when, we, when it comes to phase three and a lift on non-essential travel, that's the key, isn't it? Once we get permission to uh, pack the camper and blow town, we're gone. Except when we get to wherever it is we're headed, Walt, we want to know there'll be a place to stay when we get there. And that, even though they've never technically been closed, I think a lot of people think they are and and think they still are. And that's a bit of a, a speed bump for the hotel biz to get over, isn't it? It is indeed. That's a a significant speed bump. But so is this notion of whether people will feel comfortable staying in a hotel with a lot of other people potentially also staying at a resort or a hotel. Mm -hmm. And that's a big part of it. Do people have confidence that the right health and safety protocols are in place? And I will say unequivocally that for the hotel community, They have done an amazing job getting prepared to welcome people back. The extensive protocols that they've put in place should make everyone feel safe. But nonetheless, will people is the bigger question. And so uh, there are a lot of factors to consider as people start traveling again. In fact, one of the things that I've been talking about frequently is will people do only the free stuff that's right in our backyard, meaning the hiking and mountain biking and hanging out at the beach? Sure. Or will they, in fact, be spending money in a hotel, staying at a resort, going to restaurants, shopping and retail outlets, and doing some of the things that international visitors often do, whale watching, river rafting, golfing, uh, going to attractions, taking a tour, Many, many of those activities is largely what the internationals do, but will the locals do them? And if they don't, that's certainly not going to help the industry operators will be still desperate for that revenue. No question about it. Now, there's some simple math here that strikes me as being far too simplistic in in its presentation. So that's one of the reasons you're with us this morning, Mr. J, to just straighten all this stuff out. For example, we are told that as a group, British Columbians on an annual basis blow about $7 billion traveling to other places. And we are also told that here in British Columbia, we net about $7 billion from people who travel here from other places. So it would seem on the face of things that were we British Columbians to take that $7 billion that we spend elsewhere and spend it here in our own backyard, it might go a long way to offsetting the $7 billion that isn't going to come here from folks from abroad. Is that just way too simplistic? <laughs> it's really wishful. <laughs> that would be the ideal scenario. But typically, internationals spend outspend British Columbians three to one. Okay. So when you're going to a community and, and you're experiencing, say, the Okanagan, you're doing some wine tasting, mm-hmm. you might be renting a boat, you're staying in a hotel, etc. You know, the internationals spend a lot of money when they're here. And it's... Um, uh, it would be nice if British Columbians were to spend the same amount traveling within the province, but 
that's unlikely to happen. That's right, because we're on home turf and we're looking for deals, right? Yeah, we're looking for deals or maybe even now when people have been off work, do they have the disposable income to spend? Good point. And when they travel somewhere, will they be staying with friends and family as opposed to, again, staying in a resort or some other type of accommodation where they're spending the money Mm -hmm. that uh, internationals might spend? So, yeah, it, it, it would be a nice scenario to be sure, but it's not likely. When I first met uh, today's guest uh, decades ago, he was a radio sports guy who saw the light and got a real job. He is Walt Judas, CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC, which, according to their Twitter feed, advocates for the interests of British Columbia's $20.5 billion tourism economy. And they also add that over 800,000 jobs in the tourism sector have been lost due to the pandemic. Many will never return without critical recovery support. And, Walt, that's pretty much where we left off. You were talking, and there's a, a thing you can do on Twitter to, to go to tourismcounts.ca. You're directing people to go there, and you can uh, send a letter to the MP and support a tourism recovery plan. What kind of support are you getting from British Columbians anxious to pitch in and, and see this thing get back on the rails? Well, I think the biggest thing is um, that pent-up demand. You know, we are seeing that British Columbians are keen to travel. They are curious about information. They're anxious about moving into phase three because they do want to experience the province. And really, that's the only choice at present. So uh, for the most part, people are very supportive Mm -hmm. of our industry. At the same time, you do have folks that are concerned about welcoming visitors back to their communities. These might be more rural or smaller in nature. They don't have the support services or resources to be able to handle in the event there was an outbreak. So there is some hesitation, but each week as we move toward phase three, we're seeing some of that trepidation dissipate. So I think more and more uh, communities will be prepared to welcome visitors back. I know the tourism minister, the Honorable Lisa Bear, has been calling mayors around the province to gauge their receptivity on opening their doors and, and putting out the welcome mat, so to speak. Sure. And I, I think most are pretty keen to support their local businesses and residents and, and welcome people back from other parts of the province and then ultimately other parts of Canada. Yeah, it's, it's been quite an about-face that some of them have had to do because, of course, and you're quite right to point out that uh, uh, in the early days of, of the pandemic, a lot of small-town British Columbia simply slammed the door shut and said, please, don't bother coming by. We don't have, we can't handle any kind of, we're barely equipped, medically speaking, to look after our own small group. We can't handle outsiders. And, of course, that's perfectly understandable. But now, of course, they're having to do the about-face and say, okay, we're good now come on back and uh, so there's a, a bit of readjusting on everyone's part does it surprise you strictly anecdotally walt that rv sales and rentals are through the blinking roof this summer as you were talking earlier about hoteliers and the the anxiety factor that people how comfortable will people feel about going to a hotel well a lot of people clearly have expressed a certain degree of discomfort to the tune of big dough for a, a a separate isolation traveling vehicle, the RV. Sales are through the roof. 
Yeah, it isn't surprising, really, Sterling. And in fact, RVs or campgrounds, particularly those that house RVs, were never closed either, right from the very get-go. And so you had, at the start, when people were returning to Canada, these were snowbirds, largely in their self-contained massive RVs. They had no place to go other than to a private campground. And so many of them remained open and a lot of that then begins to to snowball if you will you know people hear about these campgrounds and the fact that they can still enjoy nature while remaining relatively secure and and self-quarantined with their own families and that was one of the activities i think that people really feel safe about particularly you you were encouraged obviously until now to stay close to home but if you did want to venture further out and you didn't want to come into contact with anybody, these campgrounds were the ideal places to go. And to do that, they were only open to RVs that were self-contained. So I'm not surprised, and people are discovering a new form of vacation, perhaps, that they'd considered at one time, but now it's much, much more appealing, and it seems to me uh, many people are, are... thoroughly enjoying the experience yeah did it a few times with the kids it's great fun we did open the phone lines let's take some calls kent thanks for waiting good morning hello yes go ahead please yeah. Kent. yeah uh i just want to comment uh, you know with your guests there and that the, the reason why i'm not spending any money in bc because number one you bad mouth the weather anytime i want to go camping oh oh it's getting hot and then oh the fires the fires you know that that that's why I don't I don't vacation in BC. Well, I, I suppose that's a, a, a thought, but you know that's that's part of living in BC. It's like Walt. All of these restaurants that have been clamoring for patios and the cities of Vancouver and other municipalities here in Metro Vancouver uh, starting to get on site pretty quickly, expediting fees and paperwork and all the rest of that stuff. So they get the patio, and guess what? It's raining. And more raining, and more raining. I mean, it's a fact of life. You live here on the edge of the rainforest, you're not going to get patio weather all summer long. And you live in a, in, a, in a province geographically this size, notorious for forest fires at certain times of every year. It's going to happen at certain times of every year. So that comes with the territory, don't you think? It does, and in fact, that's a national pastime. All of Canada talks about weather all of the time. So living in British Columbia, you're right, Sterling. You just get used to weather patterns, and and unfortunately, we had a couple of years where wildfires were predominant, and and many communities around the province experienced the effects of that, smoke and hazy skies and whatnot, but I think that's the same pattern that is happening around the world, not Mm -hmm. necessarily wildfires, but weather is much more extreme, so it really doesn't matter where you vacation, you're going to run into weather challenges. You just have to be prepared for it, as we are in British Columbia. And, and you know what? Interestingly enough, it's never deterred international visitors That's true. from coming here. In fact, in the middle of the summer or even a day like today, if you were to have Americans from places like Houston, they love it. They love it when it's cool and wet because it's almost... Um, not tolerable when you're in Houston in the middle of the summer That's and it's true. 110 degrees and humid. So it, to some degree, we can take advantage of our weather 
Um, but British Columbians are probably the loudest to complain about what's in their own backyard. That's right. I had a great conversation with a woman yesterday who just can't wait to get back up to the shoe swap. She and her family have been houseboat renting forever in a day, and darn it, they're going to do it again this year. they got 14 people on a boat, and they just can't wait to get there. That's the kind of energy you're hoping a lot more of us are going to display in the weeks ahead, correct? No question. And we are seeing really good signs of that for the months of July and August, as I mentioned before, because people really don't have a choice but to stay within British Columbia resorts on the island, in the Okanagan, in the Kootenays. They're all starting to be booked up. Interestingly enough, though, if you go to a place like the East Kootenays, it's mostly Albertans that visit there. 65% of visitors in the summer are from Alberta. True. They own second homes. So there's, there's an anxiousness to be able to say, yes, you are free or we are more welcoming to Albertans as well as other British Columbians to the East Kootenays because we value you as a client. We see you, we know you, and we're looking forward to having you back. Interesting stuff. Well, today, the website for those listening who would like to learn more about what you do and your association is up to is Tourism Industry Association of BC can be found at TIABC.ca. Walt Judas is the boss. Thanks for joining us this morning. Happy Father's Day. Have a good one. Thank you, Sterling. Thank you for having me. Always good to be here and happy Father's Day to you, too. Tony Juventu is with us. He is the author of the Condo Smarts column in the Vancouver province and has been for decades. He is also the executive director of the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC, here to talk to us all this morning about the condo insurance issue. And yes, our phone lines are open. Tony Juventu, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. How are you this morning? I am well, thank you, my friend. It's great to have you back on the airwaves. It's been a while. Before we get down to the the pitch that you've made to the government for some more assistance in this regard, can you just uh, give us the elevator nutshell uh, capsule of what the condominium insurance problem is, Tony? Because all we know is premiums are going up, fewer companies are in the game, and condo owners are frustrated. What's at the nub of the problem? Well, I think you've captured it right there. And that's that's the problem is that we have a shortage of insurance providers in the industry. And so it comes down to the good old fashioned supply and demand problem. And so you have insurers only wanting to insure buildings that are at bigger or safer risk. And then, of course, in exchange for that, the insurers pretty much can charge whatever they want because the insurers, what they provide and how much they charge is not regulated in any way. Mm. And so that's the that's the, the risk. Right. So we have this this quirky little thing in our legislation where you must get insurance. So the law says you must do this. But then you go to the flip side to the insurance industry and the law has no over no control over the consequences, really. And does the law require at least that the insurance industry provide insurance to those who need it in order to get a mortgage and so on? No. So we are in a situation where we have not a large number, but a number of buildings that have no insurance at the moment that are really struggling. Uh, and it's and it's a variety of factors. It might be the age of their building, might be the location, might be the broker that they're working with has reached a capacity and has no more buying power on the market, mm. might be a situation where they have a history of bad claims, they might be in bad state of repair, could be a bad geographic location. So, you know, and, and the other thing is, of course, as we 
you know, we start to see more projections about the growing earthquake risk on the BC coast, those areas like Richmond Delta that are more susceptible are, of course, in a higher risk bracket now. And it's even that much more difficult for properties in those regions to be getting insurance. It's so, not to- it's not totally bleak, um, but it is pretty gruesome. Yeah. It, it, and so why, Tony, why have so many players on the field withdrawn their services and said, we're not going to provide insurance to condominium owners anymore? Uh, it's about profitability, claims, and risk more than anything. Um, it's also, you know, we're kind of paying the price for worldwide insurance company conditions. Most of the insurance companies who provide insurance to even, you know, homeowners in our local neighborhoods, your own home, um, most of the insurance companies are actually international companies. Okay. So, you know, so they're, so they're, at, the, they're at the risk of the influence of other conditions and markets. And of course, all-time low interest rates, take that with low returns on investment markets, compound that with um, a, a series of, you know, world catastrophes, um, compound that with a lack of profit, and that all generates into substantial increases. We're starting to see this problem creep across the country too. This is not BC alone. Oh, okay. We're starting to see we're starting to see this creep across the country at pretty much the same rate. Uh, at what sort of premium rate of increase, given the fewer numbers of providers available, and as you mentioned moments ago, because of that and the law of supply and demand, if the demand is unceasing and the the suppliers are fewer, they get to charge whatever they want. So typically for a condo owner in Metro Vancouver, how much has his or her premiums gone up in the last couple of years, Tony? So the of the increases that we've seen in the last year, we've seen anywhere um, in the range from two to 500% wow. increases in the policies. So your policy for your building last year, that might've been 171,000. This year might be looking like seven or 800,000, which is, uh, atrocious for the public. It, it is just, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm speechless that this is happening and there's no control over it. And the bigger problem, of course, is that that money has to come from somewhere. Sure. Which means it's either coming from other people's contingency funds, which are already depleted and, and you know, declining because of issues, um, or it's coming out of increased strata fees. So people are seeing their strata fees in uh, quite a number of condos going up one or $200 a month just to cover the cost of the insurance. Interesting stuff. Our guest is uh, Tony Javentu, Executive Director of the Homeowners, uh, Condominium Homeowners Association of BC. All I said, Tony, was our lines are open. I didn't even give the number, which is 604-280-9898. But already, uh, lots of people calling in. Uh, let's take a couple as we go forward. Doug, uh, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Sterling. Um, Mr. Giovanni said something about it creeping across the country. Well, that's true. It is creeping, but it isn't in a lot of other places, and it's not all over the United States. We're just being really price gouged here in Vancouver. Can we? Can a Strata Corporation shop outside of Canada for their for their insurance? Like physically buy it in Houston or something like that? Or do they? Are we locked into these gougers? Good question. Well. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and we've, we have some experience that with that with resort properties historically. This is the, the other thing is this is not the first time this happened. This happened in the eighties as well. So we've been through, we've been through this with the insurance industry before. Was this during um, the leaky condo crisis, Tony? No, no, 15 years before that. Okay, okay. This is back, back in the big financial crisis when sure. we were with a worldwide crunch and in interest rates at 24%. Remember? Oh, okay, um, yes. 
Okay. So, so we had, so we've had, we've had the, the market is volatile to this. The difficulty with buying outside the country is there's absolutely nothing that compels the insurance company or the broker you work with to cover your claim. So, so you essentially would be buying something that is probably going to be worthless. And so that's the difficulty with that is that there is, at least if you're purchasing your insurance in British Columbia through a bro- broker in British Columbia, the insurance brokerage and the insurer who's given license to sell insurance in British Columbia um, are bound to committed to the claims that are filed. Ah. Um, the, the difficulty is outside the borders. There is no such obligation. There's no way to regulate it, and there is no way to compel it in the court. It's not, so, il- it's not illegal for Doug and his uh, strata council to buy a, a foreign-based insurance. It's just not likely the policy would be honored in the, in the event of a claim. And, and that did occur back in the mid-90s on one of the resort properties where the claim was just flatly denied and there was nothing the Strata Corporation could do about it. Okay. Yeah. Sterling Fox with Tony Juventu, the executive director of the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC on the line. And Tony, a few days ago, the Vancouver Sun ran a headline saying Condo Owners Association makes pitch to BC government on insurance crisis. You've identified brilliantly what the insurance crisis is in our province. What did you ask the provincial government to do? Well, the, it's an interesting thing because the, while the government doesn't regulate or have much control, if any, over the insurance providers, they do over the insurance brokers. And when we did the surveys through the spring and took submissions, one of the things we discovered was the biggest complaint, the two biggest complaints were, first, that the brokers were not telling their clients until a day or two before their policy renewals what their increases would be, what their policy renewal would be, or even if they could insure them. So it didn't leave the public any time whatsoever to be able to shop around Ah. um, through other brokers um, if they possibly could. And it, it, of course, the bigger problem, the other side of that is, is it prevents the the Strata Corporation from having any time to see if there are other options. And and so, you know, first, first off is that there has to be a reasonable time frame here. 30 days in advance, the broker needs to contact their client. They need to tell them what the status is, what's going on. They may not have placed the insurance yet, but they need to be informing their client what's going on so that the client has some options. Um, The other thing is, which is a little bit of a mystery in the industry, but this really needs to get sorted out. We regulated real estate agents with respect to commissions a number of decades ago because it was out of control. Um, We've discovered that between um, brokerages and uh, the insurance brokerages and some of the management strata management companies who actually act for the strata corporations that commission rates as high as 25 or 30 percent are being layered on top of these insurance policies so um you take a policy that's gone from two to eight hundred thousand dollars a 20 or 25 percent commission rate um is um excessive and, and it and the client is not aware of it it's not being disclosed to them um and they have no way to challenge it so they want some, you want some, a cap on commission possibilities uh, for brokers uh, in that regard. Uh, I don't think we want a cap, and, and may, that may where government be where government comes to at some point. But if commission rates were disclosed um, and any commissions paid um, uh, to the insurance brokers themselves, what it does is it creates transparency, sure. which is the best the best remedy for for competition. Okay, uh, back to the phones here, Anthony. Thanks for waiting. Good morning. Yes, my daughter <clears throat> lives in Westminster in a uh, 30-year-old building, 
when she bought it three years ago, her insurance uh, per year was uh, $300 and her deductible is 25000 We were, just like Mr. Gervinta mentioned, five days notice, we were told that our condo insurance was going to triple. And therefore, uh, the deductible was also going up. So it went up to from 25000 to 150000 Wow. Now, BCAA would only insure us up to $100,000. So I've been scrambling to try to get a secondary add-on policy for the extra 50000 But that extra $50,000 is going to cost a fortune. So why can the insurer cap out at 100000 when the uh, deductible from Hub International was 150000 So we're dealing with one broker, BCA, maximum payout is 100 Right. but Hub says it's 150000 And it leaves the seniors and the special needs people in a very, very precarious situation with, um, what do they call it, not, not surcharges, assessments, special assessments, and then their monthly condo fees go skyrocketing. Right, and uh, this sounds, uh, Tony, very much like it is not an isolated example by any stretch of the imagination. What is the homeowner, in this case, uh, Anthony's daughter, to do? Well, no, it's not isolated, and um, deductibles of 250000 500000 and 750000 we're starting to see more commonly. And what that, what that really is, is it's um, the insurance company for the Strata Corporation who's trying to minimize claims that affect multiple units in a building. That's why they've raised the deductibles. It, it's, a, it's a measure to stop claim, to reduce claims in exchange for increasing profits along with policies. So the difficulty is here, the homeowner can't buy enough insurance coverage to cover that deductible. That deductible in a gross amount is only the responsibility of the owner if there's been something that's happened as a result of their unit. Their bathtub overflowed, right. they did home renovations causing a damage, they had a kitchen fire. If they've caused this, then they're going to be responsible for that. So that's, it's fairly remote in most circumstances, but it is a risk. Um, and no, you can't probably buy it in every case. There are insurers out there. Some of the banks through their insurance companies have provided coverage up to $250,000 at a, at a reasonable rate. Um, I commend them because they haven't been gouging, which is reasonable. Um, and of course, um, BCAA has limits on what their payouts are going to be with respect to their capacity for insurance. That's probably the biggest reason for the $100,000 limit. Okay. So explain just for those who aren't condo owners how it works. If you own a single family home, uh, you arrange for a mortgage to purchase that home from a bank. And the bank says, great, uh, you show us your insurance certificate and we'll talk mortgage. So you do. Uh, if you have a, you, because you're talking about strata councils and their insurance versus individual uh, condominium owners within the strata. So does every condo owner, Tony, essentially carry two levels of insurance, one on your own unit plus your piece of the strata insurance? Well, we would hope they do, but you'd be surprised how many condo owners don't have their own homeowner insurance. Uh, it, and that, that becomes more evident every time there's a claim in a building that somebody's caused and suddenly they're faced with writing a check for fifty or $100,000 deductible or greater because they didn't have homeowner insurance. Right. So the Strata Corporation must insure. Individual owners are insuring for their personal property. They're insuring for any betterments that, or improvements that were made to their units. Um, and, of course, any of the personal liability, um, like general liability, or in this case, um, the deductible if they were responsible for it. 
Okay. So now, uh, as far as the approach to the government that we talked about a few minutes ago, uh, looking for some some assistance, perhaps in the regulation of uh, of fees and commission rates to brokers, those. What other uh, offers of assurance or of uh, assistance, rather, have you received, if any, from the government? And what is the opposition saying about all of this? Well, I think everyone is unfortunately in the same position with the reality that you can't regulate the, the companies who sell the insurance to the province. That's the difficulty. Sure. There, are, there are minimal financial requirements um, of reserves and ability to be able to pay claims. But when it comes down to regulating what they charge or what they impose for deductibles for claims, there is nothing that the government can do about that at this point. The, the only alternatives are if government were to look at setting up some sort of cooperative or captive model that strata corporations would essentially all be part owners of a corporation across the province. And there's 32,000 of them, so it's a, it's a large capacity. Sure. Um, and, and then they would self, essentially basically self and, and insure each other based on those risks. But given the value, and here's one, of the, here's one of the challenges about BC. Everybody says, why BC, why BC? Here's one of the big challenges. With exponentially high property values, which we all really loved, but it wasn't great if you were buying into them. That's right. Um, right. Uh, but we loved them. And it, so with high values, right behind it, you can almost predict will come because of demand, high construction prices, high construction prices convert into high appraisal prices. And ultimately, they convert into high insurance prices. Gotcha. So, you know, and so that's, that's one of the cycles that, unfortunately, industry goes through. And if you look at really highly charged insurance markets, um, you'll historically see that the same thing has occurred in other jurisdictions worldwide. Interesting stuff. Tony, it's, it's a bit of a conundrum. It's not going to work itself out anytime soon. We help you, uh, thank you rather, for helping us understand it a little bit more, possibly suggesting some roots of remedy. Uh, we'll definitely talk about this as uh, we go forward. Thanks for your time on a Sunday morning. It's a pleasure. Have a great day, Sterling. The website, by the way, friends, is CHOA, C-H-O-A dot C-A. That's the Condominium Homeowners Association, CHOA dot C-A. Excellent website. 926, Travel with Claire, coming right up. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.